0: The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. It speaks to those who are under the law. So, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because... By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Or Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. One of the most popular themes for entertainment, certainly one of the most popular dramas, is that of a courtroom being played out in the context of a trial. It has been, since the history of the television, at least, in the the, uh, creation of the movie, one of the more common themes that keeps coming back to over and over and over. It was certainly a Shakespearean theme. It goes all the way back to the medieval ages in literature that was written then. And that's because the drama of a trial pulls us into understanding an argument and then choosing a side. Arguments are made, cross examination occurs, secrets are revealed, attorneys make and present their cases. But the most intensive part of every trial is the reading of the verdict. Now, some of you are mature enough—I don't want to say old enough—mature enough to remember Perry Mason. Remember him? I still remember the song, uh, in my, that, that theme music in my head. My parents would pile around the, the television. And the whole time throughout that, that, that drama, I remember, if you're, if you're too young to remember, it, it was just basically a modern law and order. The point was, there was a trial that was developing, and you kept finding this side, no, that side, this side, he's right, she's right, that, and then at the end, it all came down to a verdict. I remember exactly where I was sitting when I heard certain verdicts in our own generation of famous trials, where I was when I found out that so-and-so was innocent or so-and-so was guilty. You probably can too. A verdict then is a conclusion of a matter. Uh, I, I know there can be appeals, but even in the appeals, there's still a verdict. It's the summation of all the findings. It's a final assessment, a final determination of the merits of the case presented. What's well, really important to understand the flow of a courtroom, the flow of a trial, and the pronouncement of a verdict when you come to study the book of Romans. Romans has more legal language than any other book in the Bible. It's set up to be like a lawyer presenting his case, an attorney presenting his findings, all with certain verdicts that were to weigh in on throughout the course of Paul's argumentation. Well, this morning we come to two verses that become the verdict and the conclusion and the pronouncement of everything he said since chapter 1 verse 18. The 17 verses of chapter 1 are simply introduction. Beginning in verse 18, he begins an argument. He begins to describe the plight of man. He begins to set up the need for the gospel that he'll begin explaining in chapter 3 verse 21 throughout the rest of the book. Romans unfolds very much like a courtroom proceeding. Paul argues his case, he enters evidence, he makes proofs, he reveals secrets, he even voices cross examination through imaginary characters who are indicted. But the main parallel between the book of Romans and a trial is that the apostle frequently stops and says, I'm going to make a conclusion. We're going to draw a verdict. You need to know what the pronouncement is based on the arguments that I've presented. And that's where we are today. This is the first case he makes in the book. And can I say this? It's the first case that has to be made in every evangelistic effort. It's the first case that has to be made in every receiving of the gospel. He sets out in verse 18 of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 3, verse 20, to simply say this. Every man ever born is in trouble with God. Every person who's ever drawn a breath has been born under the righteous indignation of a holy and wrathful God, and we have drawn the ire of the holiness of God and all stand in need of bashing judgment by a righteous God. In fact, the first chapter through chapter 2 into chapter 3 down to verse 20 is really super bad news. And as we've said from the very beginning, if you don't like being called names, Romans is not the book for you to to study because Paul piles it on us and he ultimately piles the final... uh, uh, weight of his argument on us in these two simple verses. Now, if you've noticed the the tact that we've taken in Romans, even stopping after every chapter and doing a review, nowhere I think is it more important in any book of the Bible to catch, maintain, and kind of surf on the wave of the argument more than Romans. Romans is, it can't be preached as a series of independent sermons. Paul is building a case, he's making an argument, and nowhere does context matter probably any more than in this book. In real estate, you know that the number one uh, uh, word is context, con- the first three words of real estate are context, no they're not, they're real, uh, location, 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 and in Bible interpretation, it's context, context, context. I have it written out right in my notes. Context, context, context. What does the passage mean in light of what came before? What does the passage introduce in light of what's coming after? In the original designation of this book as God's word, remember, in the canonicity of the book of Romans, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verse designations. You read it as one volume to be understood really in one sitting from the beginning to the end. And I say all that to to let you know why there's so much review in these sermons and there's so much looking ahead in these sermons because we're, we're just dropping into the middle of a train that has many cars and an engine and a caboose. It's going somewhere. And we're just looking at one of the cars in any one of these paragraphs in any one of these verses that we pull out. This is a verdict, though, that Paul makes. After verse 20... In fact, you can do this this week. After today, verse 20, and beginning of verse 21, there is a massive, deep, gasping breath of gospel air. This is the final nail that Paul drives into the coffin of our depravity. But it's because we see how bad it is that beginning next week, we're going to start studying how good, how amazing, how refreshing, how unbelievable, how, how indescribable the greatness of the gospel is. Let's look at these two verses this morning. And as we do, I want to discover with you, with you two climactic reflections about man's accountability before God. This is the climax of his argument. Two climactic reflections, conclusions, verdicts about man's accountability before God. He looks back at what he's done to say the Gentiles are condemned. He looks back at what he's done to say the Jews, even with the law, are still condemned because of their sin. He brings it all together in two verses and says, No one can stand before God righteous. All are accountable to the great judge. Now, in order to bring this section to a verdict and to a conclusion... He reflects. He looks back. He pulls all the arguments together. That first climactic reflection that he looks back on is really to say this. We need to understand that when you're dealing with God, it's a one-sided conversation. When you're dealing with God, it is entirely one-sided. We found this in verse 19. First of all, finding out that God speaks. Verse 19. Now we know... It's a phrase that Paul uses several times in the book of Romans. It's an affirmation of something biblically defined, biblically justified, biblically explained, but also something that's intuitive to his argument. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. You say, hang on, I thought you said that God speaks. He does because as the Bible speaks, God speaks. As the law speaks, it's the voice of God. It's God's assessment. It's God's word. It's God's revelation. So to hear the law, which is the Old Testament in general, and as we'll see in a minute, it's the conscience that God has written the law on in the heart. To hear God speak is to hear his word. And to hear his word is to hear God speak. The immediate question to, to this verse that we have to answer is, who are these people? We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who's under the law? Now, you have to be careful, because after reading chapter 2 and chapter 3 in the first uh, 18 verses, you might be inclined to say, that's the Jews, and you would be half right, partially right. It seems as if Paul immediately is saying... The law is speaking to those who are under the law. The Jews obviously had the law, which was the the, the designation that was given to the Old Testament scriptures, not just the first five books. And we would assume that he's talking about the Jews here. However, if you continue reading in the verse, you find out who he has in mind. Look at the last part of the verse. All the world... How can he then say that all of the world are those who are under the law? Is it fair to say that? It's a good question. How can Paul say that everyone is accountable to the Old Testament scriptures revealed to the Jews that were supposed to bring them to the knowledge of God? How can he say the Gentiles who've never heard of the law, who've never read the law, how are all of us those who are under the law? In what sense are the Gentiles Under the law? Well, first of all, you have to work backwards in the verse and see that it's all the world he's speaking about. How do we know he's talking about everyone? Well, we know that because if you look back in chapter 2, and we'll come back to this verse in a minute, in chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says that even the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves because that's verse 14. Verse 15, they show the work of the law written where? On their hearts. It's embedded in their conscience. No man can say to God ever on the day of judgment, I have an excuse. I didn't know what you expected. I have an excuse. I never heard what you said. When the law speaks, God speaks. And God even speaks, Romans 2.15 tells us, through the conscience. Now you say, what about people who seem not to have a conscience? We covered this when we studied chapter 2, verse 15, but remember this. Your conscience, Paul tells us later, can be seared. You can reduce the sensitivity of your conscience. But God does tell people what's right and wrong. There is an instinctive intuition. Even unbelievers know that. That's why that we have a A police force. That's why we have a judicial system. Even the idea of revenge, the fact that someone would try to get something back for something that they perceived was wrong speaks of the conscience that God has given them to recognize right and wrong. God speaks, and God has spoken and said, every man is under obligation to me because you either had the law of God in written form, or you know what I expect in your conscience. So what does man do? Secondly, we find out that every man is silent. God speaks, and no one can push back. No one can say yes, but. No one can provide an excuse. Look at the last part of verse 19. So that, the law of God speaks, so that every, every, not some, Not a few, not just the bad guys. Every mouth may be shut, closed, sealed. And all the world, not just Jews, not just Gentiles, everyone, all the world and every mouth may become, this is critical, accountable to God. God's judgment is coming. God's judgment is unavoidable it is inevitable it is appointed for man hebrews 9:27 says it is appointed for a man once to die then what then the judgment it is comprehensive it is universal it is personal it is specific it is applied to every man no one will escape the judgment of god paul says here every man is silent before god You and I have no excuse. We have no appeal. We have no footnotes. We have no attorney who will help talk us out of hell. No one, when we stand before God, none of us will have any offer, any plea bargain, any appeal. This reality is just simply stunning. Every mouth will be closed, every tongue silenced at the final accounting. That's an overwhelming thought, think of that final judgment. But I was good. You weren't good enough. But I didn't do this, but you did do that. Yes, but, yes, but, no one would even offer a complaint because instantly in the presence of God, everyone will know that they are rightly and justly accused. Now, if you're like me, you, you hear that. And if you love God and you love His Word, you say, Well, I want to respond to that. But why don't people who hear that respond? Why don't people deal with the inevitability of the coming judgment? Would you hold your finger there and turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 12? This is a a really important theological point that needs to be driven home and we need to understand this in dealing with our families in evangelism and dealing with our friends and coworkers and other students in evangelism. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 informs us God will bring every act to judgment, everything. Do you hear the hear the everything's and the alls? Every act, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. First of all, know that God will bring every act to judgment. Paul didn't make this up. Every man, every woman, every person will be accountable to God. But you ever wonder why don't people deal with that reality? Look at verse eleven. I mean, it's chapter eight, verse eleven. Got to go back. Chapter eight, verse eleven. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, because when you sin, God doesn't strike you dead, he doesn't give you punishment, because that sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Isn't that clear? Because God is gracious, God doesn't judge immediately. People presume on His grace, not to respond to Him in salvation, but to run and do more sin. Oh, I got away with it once; I can get away with it again. He's not really coming. Second Peter chapter two says, "Where's the sign of His coming?" He said He was going to come; He's not coming. Presuming on God's grace. Although a sinner, verse 12, does evil a hundred times, Solomon says, I know, I know. Even if his life is lengthened, I know it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But again, the end of the book, God will bring every act to judgment, whether good or evil. And he says everything is hidden. Isn't it interesting that most sin is pursued in silence, in secret, and in darkness, and sometimes at night? Now, one of the signs of how depraved our culture is getting is now sin is pursued openly. Now sin is being legalized. God says, everything hidden will become public. Public. Everything quiet will become proclaimed. Luke 12 says, it will be proclaimed from the rooftop. Is that for everyone to hear? It doesn't matter if everyone hears. Who cares if everyone hears? God himself will know. God himself will hear. God himself will determine and judge. No man can utter a word under the weight of God's righteous judgment. Very simple. All the world may become accountable to God, and every mouth will be closed and silent. It gets worse. Secondly, this climactic reflection, we look at an all encompassing conclusion. An all-encompassing conclusion. This is it. After three and a half chapters, this is Paul stamping the exclamation point on his argument. What's that all-encompassing conclusion? Well, let's look at it in two parts. First of all, we find that all are condemned in God's sight. He said it generally. Now he's going to say it specifically. All are condemned in God's sight, verse 20. Because by the works of the law... No flesh, this is such an important phrase, underline this in your mind if not in your Bible, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Now there are two words you're going to have to link together over the next five chapters. The word justification and justified and the word righteous and made righteous, What's the problem? Paul's presented the problem. Every man stands condemned, no righteousness, no righteous standing before God. He's righteous. We're unholy. We're unrighteous. Those two can't mix. Therefore, we're condemned. This word justified is so important. We'll see in verse 21, going down to the end of the chapter, that we need to be justified, made right, made righteous, made just before him. But that won't be by what's happening in this verse. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. We have to slow down here for a minute. One of the most important verses in Romans, one of the most important concepts and themes in the entire Bible, no man can be righteous, no man can be just before God by doing good things, by works of the law. Now I want to take you on a quick tour, if I can. If, if you want to turn to these verses, you're welcome to. But we're going to go really fast. Back in chapter two, we have to justify what Paul is saying here with what he said in chapter two, verse thirteen. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God; it is the doers of the law that will be justified. Ah, contradiction in the Bible, right? Paul says no one, no one will be justified by the law, but if you're a doer of the law, you'll be justified. What is he saying? If you read the flow of it, you have, this is, remember, context, context, context. The issue is you do the law because you're saved. You don't do the law to get saved. And that will be abundantly clear in the next passage. Those who can do the law respond to the law in obedience and in sanctification, but they never do it. Even as Christians, they never will do it, nor can they do it perfectly. You ever met a perfect Christian? Read First John. He who says he has no sin makes God out to be a liar. Look at Romans 3, verse 28. For we maintain, he's maintaining it, he's going to say it in, in verse 20, he's going to maintain now in verse 20, we maintain that a man is justified by faith, listen to this, apart, separate from works of the law. If that's not clear, go over to chapter 4, verse 13. He uses Abraham as this great epic illustration. I can't wait to get to chapter 14, chapter 4. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, this is surprising to a Jew, but through righteousness of faith. We'll find out what made Abraham righteous. Are you ready for this? It was nothing he did except believe God. In Acts chapter 13, verse 39, And through Jesus, through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. Even though you tried to obey, even though you you tried to obey what was right and wrong in your heart, the law of God in your heart, the law of God in God's word, you tried to obey, you were still bound and enslaved to that because you couldn't do it perfectly. You can never be freed through the law of Moses. And we have to look. At, this is going to be very tempting today, but we're going to wait until we get into the next section to look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians 2.16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, just what Paul said to the Romans, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we uh, have believed in, in, in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh, he says it exactly again, will be justified. Galatians 3, verse 10. For as a man, for as many as are the works of the law, are under a curse. What? I'm trying to obey God? trying to obey the law? And I'm under a curse? Sure. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all, all these things written in the book of the law to perform them. Perfection is required. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. What's he saying there? God demands perfection. Perfection. None of us, none of us have done that. But Christ, who was perfect, (laughs) took the curse of the law on himself and gave his righteousness to those who would believe. Galatians 5, 4, you've been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. You know what he's saying? You cannot work your way into heaven. You will never, ever, ever, ever be good enough. You want it even simpler? Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works. What kind of works are those? To read the context it 's works of the law that no one can boast titus three five he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, which he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified us oh, so fresh to hear. Being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What's Paul's argument here in Romans 3? What's Paul's argument in all those verses we just read? Is simply this. You can't be good enough. You're not good enough. No one, if I can make you feel a little more comfortable, no one has ever been good enough to save himself. Paul's argument in Romans and the testimony of the whole of Scripture is irrefutable. No one can ever be righteous and justified in God's sight by the works of the law or by doing any good works. How do you summarize that? How can you summarize that? Jesus did in Matthew 22, verse 37. He was asked, what's the greatest commandment? God was clever. He said, "If I can figure out what the greatest commandment is, if I can do that when everything else goes in the shadows." He said to him, "You shall love the Lord your God with all all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind." Now, that was enough. Comprehensive. Who loves God all the time, all the way all of your life? And the, while the guy was reeling and saying, all, 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 Jesus says, I'm going to give you a question. This is a bonus. You ask for the greatest commandment, I'm going to give you the second one too. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, This: on these simple two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So while we think, well, I didn't, all these things I haven't done, all these things I need to do, just, just hang on. Have you loved God every day, all day, all the time, with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind? If that's not enough, have you loved other people like you love yourself? Done, condemned, accountable, no way. Every man stands condemned because of what he has done, that's sins of commission, and because of sins we have not done, that's sins of omission, omitting things like loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. The conclusion then is somber. Lastly, all are guilty by God's measure. All are guilty by God's measure. For, verse 20b, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Literally, through the law The knowledge of sin is birthed. The law, the conscience in our hearts, the law that's written in God's word informs us that our guilt and our sin is present. The law functions to tell us what's wrong and to tell us what we've done wrong. The Jew is condemned by the law because he knows the Old Testament and doesn't obey it perfectly. doesn't love the Lord with all, all, all. And doesn't love his neighbor as himself. The Gentile is condemned because the law on his heart condemns him when he errs. So, what does the law actually do? We're going to come back to this passage, but you might want to mark it in your mind. It's very important. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says Therefore, the law has become our teacher, our instructor, our, our tutor. To lead us to Christ. Don't, Don't underestimate how important that text is. The law has become our tutor to lead us, not to obey it better, not to be gooder and to try harder. The law has become our instructor to lead us to Christ. How does it do that? Well, verse 25 says, in faith, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. You know what the law does? It confirms what your heart tells you, that you are indeed a bad person. If you came to church this morning expecting some self-esteem, you came the wrong day. You know what the best news in the Bible is? Is that your self-esteem should be shattered. Oh, he's a good guy. No, he's He's not. It's not a good guy. She's such a sweetheart. No, her heart's wicked. No, there there is none righteous. How many? Not even one. Now, that doesn't mean we can't say that, you know, a sweet little girl running around our church, a handsome little guy, what a sweetheart, or what a great... We're not going to change our language. We all understand what we mean, but understand this. It doesn't change the fact that the human heart is wicked, desperately depraved, and can't even be known by its owner, The law puts us in a position of knowing that we're condemned. You don't obey, obey, obey so that you get, get, get. You obey and fail and obey and fail and try to obey and fail and try and try and try and fail so that you realize you can never do this. The law is God's perfect standard given to us to expect perfection that we will never do so that we will know we need a savior. So, Paul builds this case for the better part of three chapters. And at the end of verse 20, we really, you know what we really do is we end up in in Revelation chapter 20. Let me just read that for you, verse 12. Such riveting truth. I saw the dead. Final judgment, the great and the small standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the book according to their deeds. Now, that should leave you pretty discouraged. It should leave any Jew discouraged. It should leave every Gentile discouraged. Well, he expects perfection he expects me to love him with all my heart soul, mind and strength I don't even know who he is I don't know all the nuances of what there is to love I can see that I've loved myself I'm supposed to love my neighbor just as much as I love myself I have been selfish all of us are, are, are born selfish I am in such trouble so the, the typical response is tell me what I can do to make this right Tell me what I can obey. I want to do something to make this right. And beginning next week, and in the next verse, Paul will say, hey, come here. You can't do anything. Verse 21. I am so tempted to keep us here the rest of the afternoon and just keep going to verse 21. We won't. We'll come back next week. But now, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Time out. Stop the presses. You have to obey. You have to be perfect. You have to obey. You have to be perfect. You need the righteousness of God. So, what are you going to do? I'll try to obey more. I'll try to do better. No, no, no. God's righteousness is about to be revealed to you. Are you ready for this? Outside the law. being witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's not, just doesn't, doesn't contradict the law. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God, Ugh, how do we get this? Through faith, not doing more, trying harder, but believing through faith, where? In Jesus Christ. It would be sacrilege to read verse 20 without verse 21. We would go home spiritual eors in a moment. This is, if you can hear me over the next few weeks, just with a repetitive stress disorder, where I just keep saying the same thing over and over, I've been so overwhelmed by this, and I think Paul is so overwhelmed by this, and he wants us to be overwhelmed by this. You just have to understand this. Paul spends... Up to chapter 3, verse 20, telling us, you're just no good. Not even one of you. You're in trouble before God. Creating this desperation, this panting in our soul. What can I do? What must I do to be right before God? What must I do to be saved? What do you do? You know what you do? You believe, and that's so incredible that after he says that, he's going to go on now for five more chapters to say, no, really, no, no, really, no, no, really, that's it. No, that, that's all you do is believe. Can I just give you a footnote? We teach and we believe and we hold to a, an understanding of salvation here at Mission Road that believes that Jesus Christ must be Lord to be Savior. You don't receive Jesus and then act like you want. You submit yourself to his lordship. And we believe that. We teach that. We'll get it through the rest of the book of Romans. But be careful because that submission to Christ's lordship can easily make a turn in our mind to make us think that we have to obey enough. We have to submit enough to be saved. That's not grace. But to as many... As believed, John 1 says, John 1, 12. As many as believed, he gave the right to what? Become children of God? Paul is going to spend the next few chapters actually saying, that real, that real, I really meant that. That's, that's it. It's just belief. It's, you believe. You don't do. All of us are natural born doers. That's why the Catholic religion came to be. It's because it gives some credence to man's efforts. It allows us to work alongside Christ to be saved. This passage crushes that ideology. And aren't you, aren't you glad it does? <laughs> what must I do to be, be saved? You know what you do? You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's so simple, not easy. It is so simple simple even preaching that and even saying that makes me want to say you just have to believe but you have to obey you just have to believe but you, we'll get to that later but the simple part is faith this is what the chapter 4 is going to be all about Abraham what did Abraham do to become righteous he believed God what did he do he believed he had Faith, and because of that faith, God said, I now will give you my righteousness. That ought to make you scratch your head and say, huh? That doesn't make any sense. And you'd be exactly right. Because God's salvation, 1 Corinthians 1, is what to man? It's foolishness. It doesn't make any sense. Every religion in the history of man and every religion in the world outside of Christianity is a religion of works-based righteousness, human achievement, where man does enough to eventually be accepted by the deity. Christianity says you'll never do enough. You're done. But Christ has done enough for you. And if you receive him by faith, it's just I mean, have we heard this so much that we're not overwhelmed by it? If you receive Christ by faith, by simply believing him, he will give you the righteousness of God in Christ. I hope that makes you say, that just doesn't sound right. Paul understands that, which is why he spends the rest of the book explaining why that is right. The righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who do what? Who believe. Was that Jews or Gentiles? There's no distinction. You know why? Because they're all level. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'll stop or we'll keep going. It's just, he (laughs) answers our soul's cry. By faith, you have been saved. Sola fide, by faith alone. Solus Christus, in Christ alone. Because of what? Solus gracias, his grace alone. Stop trying. We obey because we love God. We don't obey and we don't try to do the works of the law and we don't try to do right things so that God will look down and say, hmm, nice job, you get to come to heaven. Oh, I see you doing that. You're in. You made the cut. No one makes the cut except those who believe they can't and that Christ makes the cut for them. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I just, I'm in awe again that it's so simple. Not easy, but it's so simple. It's unbelievable unbelievable, unimaginable that you would grant your favor, grant your grace, grant your mercy, grant your righteousness, give us perfection, make us in right standing before you, Lord, because we believe what you've done. But what you've done is so impressive. To take our sin away by crucifying your only begotten Son, No human mind would ever invent that scheme. We are accountable to you, Lord, and can never stand in the judgment without the pleading blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grant faith to an unbeliever who may be here. Grant faith to believe that you have lived and died for their souls and to cease striving, to quit trying to please you, to gain your favor. And then, Lord, then obedience. What a joy obedience is to smile with you at our efforts to be like you, to be like Christ, to imitate you and your character because you've given us faith, not in order to get faith. This book, Lord, is already doing such wonderful corrections in my thinking and in my theology, in my feelings, in my affections toward the gospel. Help it to be a corrective in all of our hearts, instructive and informative. We want to think better. We want to think more accurately about the gospel. Please teach us, cause our instruction, cause your instruction in our hearts rather, be something we meditate on, we talk about, we encourage each other with so that we can do better at loving you with all of our heart, all of our might, all of our strength so that our neighbors are loved better than we love ourselves and people will see our good works, Lord, and they will glorify our Father who's in heaven knowing that that those would never come from us. So, give us divine illumination to be able to recognize our depravity and divine illumination to see the grace that's in the cross. For our good and satisfaction, and Lord, for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit Mission Road Bible Church dot com.